at the end of our time today, we're going to look at just a short amount of text. But what I want to, to encourage you to do is to think of yourself as a embodied creature with the capacity to carry forward God's mercy and kindness in your lives. I want you to view yourselves as an instrument of God's redeeming love and grace. God made the world to communicate his character and glory and goodness, and he made you in particular to do that. And as we look at this text, we're going to see how Naomi picks up on Boaz's embodiment of God's mercy, and she transforms before our eyes to do that exact same thing, to start to embody God's mercy and grace. Before we jump into that, though, there, there are two other background pieces of information that we need to have. So we need to have this idea of living in the world in a way that understands God revealing himself to us through grain and barley and food and marriage and everything else. But there are also two aspects of the worldview of the, of the recipients of Ruth that are called Leveret Marriage and Kinsman Redeemer. So these are two background Old Covenant law pieces that we need to have in mind so that we can hear the text rightly. The first thing that I want to talk to you about is Leveret Marriage. Okay, so if you've heard the book of Ruth preached before, or if you've read commentaries on the book of Ruth, very often there will be a description of the marriage of Boaz and Ruth as a leveret marriage. Well, what's going on here is in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant law, there was a provision called leveret marriage for a widow who died childless. And so the thinking would go in this way. If, if there was a man who was married, he died without leaving any children, then his brother, unmarried brother, was to marry this widow. And then the firstborn son would be the legal heir of the man who had died. So, so this firstborn son, when he came of age, would receive the property and, and everything else of his dead not father genetically, but father legally. So, so there's one text in the Bible that describes leveret marriage, and that's found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. And it reads in this way. When brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law, she is to go to the elders at the city gate and say, my brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He isn't willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law for me. The elders of his city will summon him and speak with him, and if he persists and says, I don't want to marry her, then his sister-in-law will go up to him in the sight of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. Then she will de declare, this is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's house. And his family name in Israel will be the house of the man whose sandal was removed. Okay, this, this takes a little bit of explaining again, but you can envision the circumstance. There's, there's the man who died. 
the, the widow is not permitted to marry outside of that family because the Israelites have this theology of land and family name where it's really important for the land to stay within the family and it's really important for the family name to be carried on. Uh, and, and so she was to marry the brother-in-law. The brother-in-law was supposed to, if he was a noble man, marry this widow even though it would mean that he would have to take care of her and he would have to take a son who would take away his property someday, you know, the property of this, this deceased man. He would have to care for this kid. He would have to raise him. It would be costly for the brother-in-law to act as this leveret husband, okay? And, and so the son would then go off with the property. Now, very often, because it was costly, and because perhaps this guy had a different woman he wanted to marry, you know, maybe he didn't like his sister-in-law, or, or maybe he thought she was cursed because her husband died and they didn't have children. Whatever the case might be, this brother-in-law might not want to marry the widow. And so the widow was supposed to go to the elders of the town in, to, at the city gate and ask them to appeal to this brother-in-law on her behalf to marry her. And so the, the brother would be required to talk to these people. And if he still wasn't convinced that he should do this, there was a way out. And, but it was a way of shame. Okay? So there was, the way out was for this lady to essentially remove the sandal from this guy as an act of shame and say, you're leaving me exposed and uncovered. You're not willing to do your duty. And so because you won't allow my dead husband's family name to continue on, your family name will now essentially be a name of shame. Your family name is going to be the guy whose sandal was removed. So there was a way out, but it was shameful. And, and we've seen this happen as good readers of the Bible in Genesis chapter 38, where Judah's son, I forget his name, starts with an E, Ella or something like that. Anyway, he, he died because he was a wicked guy. And so his brother was supposed to marry Tamar, his, his wife, this widow. But of course, this guy didn't want to father a child with her, but he still wanted to have sex with her. So he did, but then he, he was cursed of the Lord and he died. And his next brothers, the same thing happened to them. They failed to follow through on this leveret marriage responsibility, probably because they didn't want to have to care for a son that wasn't going to be theirs, who would take their, their dead brother's property and, and um, it, it just wasn't a, win, a winning situation for them. Now, we've learned with Tamar that probably Judah thought she was cursed, and that's why each one of these sons were dying, and so he kept the final son from her. But there was this practice of leveret marriage that a nobleman would have carried out. Now, when we think about the story with Naomi, when her husband died, she did have two sons. And so even if, he, even if Elimelech had a brother, that brother wouldn't have been obligated to marry Naomi and have more sons with her because the family name was being carried on through Malon and Kilion. The problem is, of course, that Malon and Kilion both died without children. And so this family line is in danger of being, being extinguished. And this puts them in the same situation as others who have gone before them, like the whole tribe of Benjamin in Judges chapter 20 and 21. It puts them in the same situation as Lot, whose sons were, who apparently didn't have sons to carry on the line and whose daughters, their husbands died. Uh, and, and then in, 
in other people like Judah and Tamar. You know, there, there are family lines in danger of being extinguished. And this is a really bad thing. And so people often went through desperate measures to try to carry on the family line, as Lot's daughters did, as Tamar did with Judah. And, and those are bad ways of carrying on the family name. This was the proper way to carry on the family name. Now, a lot of commentators and study Bibles are suggesting that what's going on with Ruth and Boaz is a leveret marriage. But I want to suggest to you that it's not a leveret marriage for a few reasons, and then I'll explain the significance that it's not a leveret marriage. The first is the fact that the word for leveret marriage is completely absent in the book of Ruth. Now, we, we need to remember that concepts can be present without a technical term being used. That is the case, but I think it's still significant that the term for leveret marriage is not used, and none of the characters in the book refer to this marriage as a leveret marriage. But then second, as we read in Deuteronomy, the responsibility for a leveret marriage fell on the brother of the deceased man. Well, Boaz is not a brother of Elimelech or Malon or Killian. He's a distant relative. And, and in fact, we get the idea that there are no more brothers who could carry out this act of leveret marriage. And so I, I think that there are just no people in this story who would qualify to fill the role of a leveret marriage. So we shouldn't see any marriages that come forward as a leveret marriage. And in fact, in Ruth chapter one, this is what Ruth is referring to. She says, I am too old to have another son who could become your husband when she's speaking to Ruth or Orpah. And so she recognizes leveret marriage doesn't apply to us. There's no way for this family line to be carried on. And if either of you married, you'd be marrying into another family and your sons would belong to that family. Your family allegiance would rely on that family and it wouldn't be connected to me at all. Third, I think then that we need to distinguish between the role of a kinsman redeemer that we'll discuss later this morning and this form of marriage, a leveret marriage. Those two things are separate things. I'll outline later the responsibility of a kinsman redeemer, but it does not involve marriage in any way. Fourth, the first, the first son in a leveret marriage would legally be of the line of his deceased uh, father. You know, it's not his biological father, but he would be a legal father. Well, when we get to the genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth, this son, Obed, is attributed to Boaz, not to Malon. That, I, th I think that's significant. And what it shows us is that even if Leverett marriage, you know, was in view, it didn't happen the way that it should happen because the son is not attributed to Malon. Now, next week, we're going to deal with Boaz's rationale for marrying Ruth, which is to continue on the deceased man's name. But that just doesn't happen at the end of the story. So for all of these reasons, I don't think that we should understand the forthcoming marriage of Boaz and Ruth as a leveret marriage. This is significant because it means that what Boaz does when he marries Ruth goes beyond anything the law would require of him. If we view this marriage as a leveret marriage, we really have nothing more than an act of obligation and the avoidance of shame for failure to do so. But neither Boaz nor the other redeemer we'll learn about was obligated to marry Ruth. So when we read of a marriage, we start to understand that Boaz is going far beyond the letter of the law. 
In fact, there's no provision in the law for marriage that, that would require someone to marry Ruth. There, there's just no provision in the law for that. So what Boaz does is he embodies the spirit of the law, but goes beyond the law in marrying her. But then second, by understanding that there was no obligation in anyone, on anyone in Israel to marry Ruth, and in fact, there was pr- probably good reason not to marry her, such as the prohibition of marrying Moabites, you know, the, the fact that no one should be marrying a Moabite indicates the daring nature of Naomi's plan for Ruth that she's going to lay out in chapter three. And it's going to allow us to read what happens with the kind of scandalous overtones that I think would have been present in that time. So next week, we'll consider that text where Ruth approaches Boaz in a particular way. And we need to hear that as scandalous. And it's in part, we, we can say this is scandalous because there was no leveret marriage that would have commended the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. And there are texts in the old covenant law that would prohibit the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. So what's going on here is far beyond a tame, uh, you know, sort of shallow or well, not shallow, but just a calm, happy marriage proposal. It's something that's scandalous and dangerous and beyond anything the law would require or even permit from, from any angle that we can look at it. So that, that's why I'm trying to make the case that it's not a leveret marriage. It changes the way that we hear this story a little bit. So if in your study Bible or if you're reading a commentary and it suggests that it is leveret marriage, I would just encourage you to consider these problems where, where Boaz doesn't fit the categories of someone who would qualify as a leveret marital guy. All right. Now, I should say that one of the reasons commentators and study Bibles will describe this as a leveret marriage is because there's a parallel between the, the woman removing the shoe of the guy who failed to act in this way and the, the other redeemer removing his shoe and giving it to Boaz. Because that comes up, I just want to counter it here and say that the person who was supposed to remove the shoe of the brother who would fail to operate as a, as a husband was the woman. The widow was the one who was supposed to remove that shoe in the presence of everybody. And in the book of Ruth, as we'll discover next week, it's not Ruth who removes the shoe. It's the man himself. He removes the shoe. Now, the second piece of that is in the Deuteronomy text, it's a shameful thing for that shoe to be removed. But in Ruth, there's a tagline in there that's going to explain that this is how promises were made or deals were done in that day. And so the author is going through to great pains, and by great pains, I mean adding a sentence in a really short book, to, to remind us and to make the point that leverage marriage is not in view. So this was not a shameful thing for the Redeemer who passed on marrying Ruth. It was a way of of making a deal, okay? So if you come across those connections in your study Bibles, I think that those connections are superficial and they don't make sense of the text. And if you hear it as a leveret marriage, it kind of tones down the scandal of what's going on and the scandal of grace, we might say. This kindness of Boaz is far more prominent when we understand that he had no responsibility to marry Ruth. Okay, that, that's an aside, a background piece of information that we need to have. The other piece that we need is to understand the role of the Redeemer. So 
we got, we got that piece of background information at the beginning of chapter two, where we learned that there was this prominent noble guy named Boaz who was a family redeemer. And then again, in the text we'll consider today, Boaz is described as a relative and as a family redeemer. What that is indicating is that he, he had some responsibility to this family though he had less responsibility than the other kinsmen we'll read about next week. But in the old covenant law, there were at least five responsibilities that were incumbent on a kinsman or on a family redeemer. The first is that the kinsman redeemer had the responsibility to purchase back hereditary property that had passed outside of the family clan. This is actually the only responsibility incumbent on any of the redeemers that we'll encounter in the book of Ruth. That, that is to say that likely Naomi would have needed to sell her family property in order to be provided for and to have money to live. Well, if that had happened, then it would have eventually been the responsibility of one of these kinsmen to buy it back, to keep it in the clan at least. There was a second responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, and that was to purchase the freedom of individuals who had sold themselves into slavery to avoid poverty. So in that day, sometimes individuals would, if, if they were facing poverty or dire circumstances, they would sell themselves into slavery so that they would not go into poverty. So it was a different kind of slavery than what we might imagine in American history. But the kinsman redeemer had a responsibility to eventually buy this guy out of slavery. Okay. Third, the kinsman redeemer had a responsibility to track down and execute anyone who had murdered a relative. So there were provisions in the law where, where there were cities of refuge for someone who had accidentally killed somebody, and they would go to that city to avoid being captured and executed by a kinsman redeemer. So it was a kinsman redeemer who would execute justice on behalf of the family or the clan. Then fourth, now, up to this point, all of those were costly to the kinsman redeemer. This fourth one benefited the kinsman redeemer, and that is if a relative had died and there was a penalty of money that needed to be paid by the perpetrator, that money would go to the kinsman redeemer. And then the final one is that this kinsman redeemer had the responsibility to enact justice in a lawsuit on behalf of a family member. So they were to serve as a lawyer of sorts. Out of all of these five responsibilities that we find in the Old Testament, only one of them applies to either kinsman redeemer, and that's the responsibility to buy back land if it were going to be sold. So what this does is it once again shows that if any of these kinsman redeemer were going to step up to provide food or anything else for these two ladies, it would be, be, it would be going beyond what the law required of them. So th there was a law that required anyone to care for the widow and the foreigner in particular ways, but Boaz didn't have any more responsibility really than anyone else in the story. He didn't have any more responsibility to these two ladies than anyone else in Bethlehem did at the time, except for the purchase of land that might be sold. What this is going to do for us is remind us of the necessity of God's people to embody God's law and to embody the spirit of the law and to go beyond the letter of the law. Because the letter of the law never does really that much for these two ladies. 
these ladies were in a spot where the law didn't help them out that much. So what God's people needed to do was to go beyond the law in showing love and kindness and grace and mercy to these two ladies. And in so doing, they would act as God himself had acted to Israel. And I think that's why it's important for us to reflect on this idea of a kinsman redeemer is because that station or that position was reflective of God's own redeeming work in Israel throughout history. So whenever a kinsman redeemer would act, they would be embodying the characteristics of God that, that would be needed in the life of this person who was facing poverty or in the life of this clan who had a family member murdered. This kinsman redeemer was supposed to act on God's behalf for, for these destitute people. And that's what God had been doing from the beginning of time as he worked to redeem Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, very often, we wonder whether or not Boaz is a Christ figure. Well, I'm going to say that Boaz is not properly a Christ figure, according to strict definition. If, if we were going to label him as a Christ figure, we'd want New Testament authors to reference Boaz in that way or to allude to this narrative in that way. Instead, Boaz is a Christ figure as every kinsman redeemer was a Christ figure, revealing the redemptive hand of God and pointing forward to one who would intensify that redeeming work. So God redeemed Israel from the land of Egypt and kinsmen redeemers were supposed to reflect God's redemptive work as they fulfilled their responsibilities. But then Christ picks up on that as the greatest and final redeemer, the, the one who became the possession and justice and freedom of his people, filling the roles of these kinsmen redeemers. So when we read about redemption in the book of Ruth, it should point us forward to read Christ as our great redeemer. In fact, this is what the New Testament authors do. They pick up on the language of God redeeming Israel and on the language of these kinsmen redeemers, and they talk about Jesus in this way. So when we talk about Boaz as a redeemer, I think it's right for us to think about Jesus, even though Boaz isn't a, strictly speaking, Christ figure. He is a redeemer. And we should remember that Christ is our redeemer. And, and when we hear these redemption texts or when we see kinsman redeemer acting in the Old Testament and we fail to think of Jesus, I think we're like that disciple Cleopas in Luke. At the end of Luke, if you remember this, the risen Lord is walking on the road and there's this group of people and Jesus keeps himself from being revealed to them. And in this individual Cleopas, I don't know how you'd pronounce his name or her name, but this, this, this individual is lamenting the fact that as they're walking with the risen Lord, that, that Jesus had died and had been dead for three days and that they were hoping that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Well, this individual is blind to the risen Lord next to him. And we don't want to be like that individual as we read about redemption in the book of Ruth. We want to see through the, the bare minimum of redemption and see Christ as the great redeemer. And that's exactly what's prophesied at the beginning of Luke, is, is that Jesus would be the great redeemer, the one who would redeem Israel out of bondage. Now, when we get to Boaz redeeming the land of Naomi, and taking on Ruth as a wife, we see a redeemer going beyond his responsibility 
not only to redeem the property of an Israelite, but to include a Gentile in that redemption. And in that act of redemption prefigures the redeeming work of Jesus. He goes beyond what was expected of him. Boaz acted in a surprising way to marry Ruth. Well, Jesus acts in a surprising way to redeem the whole world and to welcome Gentiles like most of us into his body to act as his bride. That's the redeeming work of Christ. So I I would encourage you as you read the Old Testament and you hear this language of redeemer, think forward, read the Bible forward and backward to see God redeeming Israel out of Egypt and then read forward to see Christ redeeming us out of our captivity and becoming our possession and our freedom in a surprising way, including us as Gentiles into the redeeming work of the Lord. Okay, so with these three pieces of information, the, the sacramental way of viewing the world that God becomes embodied or, or realities about God become embodied in things like grain and harvest. That's one piece. The second piece is this leveret marriage that's not at play here, but its lack of being present in the book of Ruth highlights the noble character of Boaz. And then finally, this third piece, which is the kinsman redeemer. With those in mind, let's turn to our brief text of Ruth chapter 2, verses 18, and then we're going to go through chapter 3, verse 2. So in, in verse 18, Ruth had just finished eating this meal with Boaz, and she ate and was satisfied, and then she went back to work. So Ruth gathered grain in in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. We we don't harvest barley on a regular basis, probably. This was probably somewhere between 30 and 50 pounds of barley, and they say that that's just an extraordinary amount for one person to harvest. So she was infinitely blessed in this provision of food, and she was industrious to work hard at this. But then she picked up the grain, and went into town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And Ruth brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. So once again, we see Ruth making good on her covenantal pledge to Naomi. She pledged to care for Naomi and to stick with her, and now she is. She's providing for her. So just as Boaz embodied God's kindness and provision in allowing her to glean from the field and to eat this meal, now Ruth is embodying God's kindness and provision for Naomi as she shares that with her. So her mother-in-law says in verse 19, and and notice how the author keeps bringing up these family terms. It's her mother-in-law. The the mother who is going to send Ruth away to her true mother is now back in relationship with her, functioning as a mother-in-law. So this lady says, where did you gather barley today? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. This is, I think, a turning point in Naomi's disposition to the Lord. Whereas before she only saw God as one who stood against her, Whereas before she saw herself only as one who was empty, whereas she saw the Lord as one who was not faithful in showing steadfast love and kindness. Now, without even knowing who this guy is, she is seeing that this grain represents the provision of the Lord. So may the Lord bless the man who noticed you. So then Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. So this is 
connecting that background piece of information at the beginning of chapter two, Ruth had no idea that this guy is a kinsman redeemer. She doesn't know probably really what that means, but Naomi does. So Naomi says to her daughter-in-law in verse 20, may the Lord bless him. And then listen to this and note the ambiguity. May the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. I want to point out that he is an ambiguous, it has an ambiguous referent. We don't know if this refers to the Lord or to Boaz. We just know that blessed be Boaz because he, whether the Lord or Boaz, we don't know, has not abandoned his kindness to the living or to the dead. I think the author intends for this to be ambiguous, and it carries forward the idea that the Lord acts through people. God's kindness is embodied and shared through people. So Boaz acted in kindness, but his actions of kindness were the fruit of the Lord's kindness. God's kindness takes on flesh through his people as they exercise mercy and love to others. And again, this is the point that I want us to reflect on in particular as we leave, is that you and I are made in the image of God, and so we have the capacity to be God's kind acting hand. And the fact that we're being remade into the image of Christ allows our acts of kindness to point towards an eternal redemption that God has accomplished through Jesus. In any case, I also want to point out that this word for kindness is that word we've repeated over and over again, said this covenant faithfulness and steadfast love of the Lord. So in chapter one, Ruth, Ruth expressed her desire um, for a good life for Ruth and Orpah by saying, may the Lord show kindness, said to you, just as you have done to the living and to the dead. So Naomi didn't think the Lord was very kind. She didn't think he was very faithful. So Ruth and Orpah were the standard of kindness, of steadfast love that the Lord ought to operate by. Well, now the Lord once again becomes this standard of steadfast love. So may the Lord bless this man because God and Boaz have not abandoned his kindness to the living or to the dead. This is a change of perception on Naomi's part. And, and I think that what this helps us understand is that very often God will make his kindness so clear to us that we can't but notice it. We have to notice it. And in noticing it, we need to look backward on our lives and reinterpret the events of, in our lives that we used to think of as bitter things, as bad things, and instead understand them as a blessing of the Lord. Naomi includes this kindness to the living and to the dead, I think because she's now looking back on her life and those events that she thought were the emptying hand of the Lord and only a curse from the Lord, the Lord was using to bring his kindness to bear once again. So what I want to encourage you to do is when you do experience this unavoidably obvious kindness of God in your life, Look back on the other events of your life and reinterpret them in light of God's grace and kindness to you. If you are bitter about something that's occurred in your life, allow the ongoing kindness and love of God to transform your view of that event. Most of us, I think, can recall points in our life that are extremely hard, 
and, and that even as you think of them now might bring tears to your eyes because they were painful events. And perhaps for some of you, as you connected with family over the, the Christmas day and you were reminded of your childhood and things from your past that you look on as scarring things in your life, allow God's kindness to you to recolor those and, and know that God's kindness was there then and it's here now. And, and if you have trouble doing that, if as you try to reinterpret those events, the, the present kindness of the Lord isn't enough to do it, Remember also the kindness of God's redeeming act in Christ that gives you new life forever and that heals all things. What Naomi is doing here is what in the literary world we see round characters doing. So we have flat characters that just stay the same throughout a story. Those are like the extras in a movie or you know someone who just stays the same. Those are the boring people. You're not supposed to pay attention to them you are supposed to pay attention to round characters who shift and change, and you're supposed to learn from them. And Naomi is shifting and changing here. And this is cause for rejoicing. This one who once spoke ill of the Lord is now speaking highly of him. Now she's going to continue on because she's putting puzzle pieces together that Ruth has not yet understood. She goes on to say, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Now, I don't think that Ruth understands what's happening in those words because she just goes on to say, Ruth the Moabitess said, he also told me, stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So she's just excited about the fact that they're going to get to eat food and they're going to have enough food for the winter. So this harvest time, you know, there, there are two harvests that she's going to be working in, and they extend from late May, probably through early June, or, or sorry, late March through early June. So it's several months of gathering food. And so Ruth is just excited about this. They're going to eat, and they're not going to experience famine. They're going to be provided for. But I think right here, Naomi starts scheming a little bit. Keep that in mind. Scheming in a positive way, okay? She, she's, she's considering this matter in, in her mind. But Ruth the Moabitess, and once again, it's highlighted, she, the kinsman redeemer doesn't really matter to her. She's the Moabitess. She's outside of the covenant people of the Lord, though, though we'll understand something different down the road. But the, the narrator is trying to slow down this story. He's trying to, or she, whoever wrote this, is trying to say, that Naomi is putting pieces together. We have a kinsman redeemer here, but that in the end might not mean anything because the kinsman redeemer isn't obligated to Ruth the Moabitess. In any case, we've, we've seen Naomi shift in her attitude towards the Lord, but now we're going to see a shift in her attitude towards Ruth. So Naomi in verse 22 said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. So Naomi now cares about Ruth being protected. And so she's giving her the instruction, stick with the female servants. That's where you'll be provided for. We don't know why Ruth says that Boaz told her to stay with the young men. Maybe that's just this collective whole. She's maybe referring to all of his servants. Whatever the case, Naomi is concerned with Ruth's well-being and she wants her to stick with the young women so that she's not molested or harmed in any way kind of as we discussed last week. In any case, 
we get the narrator's note in verse 23 that Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. So this is that part time from late May, or I don't know, I keep saying that, late March until late May, where she's gathering harvests. This is several months. We have no idea if she encountered Boaz again. We would assume that she does, but the story is silent. We don't know what's come of the relationship over these three months between Boaz and Ruth, but apparently nothing really has, or at least nothing worth reporting. But that final line is worth reporting, and that is that she lived with her mother-in-law. So during these three months, even as she's engaging with other residents in this land, she has not taken another husband. She has not pursued that. Instead, she's maintained her covenantal pledge to Naomi, and she's lodged where she lodges. She lives where she lives. Ruth is a covenantally faithful individual. So then when we get to chapter 3, this is about three months down the road, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? And then she's going to go on to describe how uh, Ruth should essentially propose to Boaz. But what, what's going on here is that the, the author is picking up from chapter 1 where Naomi wanted Ruth to find rest in the home of a husband. Well, now Naomi is contriving of a way for Ruth to find rest in a home of a husband, but in the home of a husband who would keep them together. I think Naomi knows Ruth is not going to renege on her pledge to me. She is not going to sever her loyalty to me. She is going to work to provide and care for me. Well, there's this guy, Boaz, who is a kinsman redeemer, and maybe there's a way to get him to marry Ruth in a way that will keep Ruth and I together and in a way that Ruth will be willing to comply with. I think that if Naomi had suggested that Ruth go marry some guy and, and now be part of that family clan, I think Ruth would have said no. She's already done that. So Naomi is finding a way to reciprocate the kind of love and faithfulness and provision that Ruth has showed to her. This is in stark contrast to Naomi's words to the women of Bethlehem when Ruth is standing right next to her and she essentially says, God's taken everything from me and there's nothing in my life worth having. Well, that attitude towards Ruth has changed drastically over these three months. And once again, this mother-in-law is going to act as a faithful, loving mother and seek to find rest in the home of this husband for her. We will pick up next week on, on the plan. It's, it's going to take some explanation. I would encourage you to read chapter 3 very carefully this week because it is intriguing. And it's one of those things that if, if this were a movie, if you were watching a movie or maybe a TV series, if, if you were watching a TV series that was coming out on the actual television and you missed that week's episode... If you jumped in the next week episode, nothing would make sense because it, everything is very complex and carefully crafted in chapter three. So I would encourage you to read that. 
but to read it again in mind with the fact that Boaz had no responsibility to either of these women other than to purchase land. So how should we respond to these things? I think that as we reflect on this idea of the redeeming work of Boaz that will be set before us in the next chapter, and as we think of the redeeming work of Christ, we ought to respond with thanksgiving and astonishment. Just as astonished as we might be that an Israelite noble man would marry a Moabite, we ought to be astonished that God would care about us and that Christ would care about us. So when we think of our redemption, we need to think of ourselves as a Moabite, being redeemed and cared for and loved by someone who would have every reason to ignore us. Second, I think, as I've always already encouraged us, that we ought to reflect on our lives in a way that sees it through the redeeming work of Christ, that rethinks and reinterprets the hard events in our lives to see them through the grace of Christ. And in doing so, I think it positions us well to enter into seasons of trial. If we can look to our past hardships and see them as God's kindness, veiled in hardship, then when we enter into those hardships in the coming year, we will be able to see them in the same way. So I think that we must ground ourselves in the redeeming love of Christ so that whatever comes in the year 2021, that will begin before the end of the week, we will receive those hardships as those who've been redeemed by Jesus, knowing that he has shown us more love than we could ever imagine. But then finally, and perhaps most significantly, I think that we should respond to the redeeming work of God in, in the hope of redemption that Ruth has demonstrated here and that, Boaz ha, or that Naomi has demonstrated here. I think that we should respond to that by striving to be that kind of a person, the kind of people who embody the redeeming love of Christ and who embody the redeeming spirit of Christ. And I think that our church should try to be the kind of church that would show that redeeming love and redeeming compassion to anyone who would enter into this building or, Lord willing, into the building down the road from here. We don't want to become the kind of people who have tasted of redemption and keep that redemption to ourselves. Instead, We need to become the kind of people who would look at those who walk into our church with hurts and with loss and with bitterness and see them as individuals who we should show the redeeming love of Christ to. This is going to take some work on all of our parts because each of us have a tendency to think only of our hurts and our loss and our need for the redeeming love of Christ. Well, we should think about that, but we should also look on others and seek to show that redeeming love to them as well. This means that we must look at people differently. We cannot look at them in terms of what nice clothes they're wearing or what they might have to offer us or what sense of humor they have or whether or not they have good personalities. We need to think of them in terms of people who are navigating a broken world as broken people who need the redeeming love of Christ. And God has ordained from the very beginning that his redeeming love is expressed through embodied human image bearers of God. That's us. So when you come to church, I want to encourage you to come 
thinking and praying that God would bring people to this building that you can show God's love to. Certainly come thinking in terms of, I want to hear a word from the Lord today. Certainly come in terms of thinking, I want to receive God's love from others today. But also come with a prayer on your heart or on your lips that God would bring someone into your sphere of being that needs God's redeeming love and that he would enable you to show that love to them. This is hard for us to remember. Parents, this is really hard for you to remember because you have kids who are demanding your attention. Give them that attention. And as God gives you opportunity, show love to others as well. And and what that means is that your redeeming actions have to extend beyond just your residence in this building in the same way that our reflections on the incarnation of Christ must extend beyond the day of Christmas. What, what I'm trying to say is that wherever your feet go, you're an image bearer of God being remade into the image of Christ. And so wherever your feet are, you have a responsibility in that place to show God's redeeming love. And, and even beyond that, you have a responsibility to draw people into your sphere of being and influence and show them God's love. This means, as awkward as it might be, inviting people into your home to show them God's love, if, wherever that is permitted. You know, m- maybe there's a shutdown where that can't happen. But I, I think we have to, as, as people who tend not to think about showing love to others, strategize on how we can do that. You might say, whether it's talking to someone I don't know in, at this church or in my home, I have nothing to offer. I don't have a sense of humor. I don't have a good personality. You're not alone if you're thinking that. And so just give it a trial run with people who will be forgiving to you. You know, go up to someone and talk to them, even if you feel uncomfortable, who is a member here, knowing that they're not going to hold it against you if you act awkward or say something silly. And then invite those people into your home. I, I tried this this past week. We had a few single guys into our home and no one's more forgiving about awkwardness than single guys who are just happy to have a free meal. Whatever it takes to build up those skills do it because it's not just building up those skills to entertain people, but to show hospitality to them and to show them the redeeming love of the Lord. So as, as we end here and as you reflect on chapter three, as you read it in preparation for next week, I just want to impress upon you your responsibility and privilege as an image bearer of Christ to embody God's love and faithfulness and redemption wherever you go.